Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's The Wonky Show. There's new ONS figures on the impact of the pandemic on students. Uh, and we'll chat skills for jobs, grade inflation and care leavers. And we'll dig into what's afoot at St Andrews. It's all coming up. He's an adult now. He's 21. He's been away from home for a few years now. He's got friends that he lives with. He's paying rent. This is the other thing. Students who are in private accommodation, they see that as sunk cost already. You know, they're paying for a house, they're paying for rent, that they want to actually enjoy that independence and that first step on the ladder. And also 30% of those students have gone... Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to help us make sense of what's been happening this week, as ever, we've got two fabulous guests. In Greater Manchester, Michael Taylor is the Head of Regional Affairs at Manchester Metropolitan University. Michael, your highlight of the week, please? I think it was being involved in the launch of the Manchester Student Think Tank, with students both from our place, University of Manchester and Salford, uh, sharing with them some of the learnings I've had from launching our Think Tank Metropolis over the last five years. Well, that sounds fantastic. We'll put uh, link to some details in the show notes. And in London, Kat Turn is the policy analyst at the Russell Group. Kat, your highlight of the week, please. Oh, I don't know whether you'd call it a highlight, but I've had the uh, task of putting together the Ofqual uh, DfE consultation response from the Russell Group this week, thinking all about how we will assess students in the summer. Oh, exciting stuff. Looking forward to seeing that if you publish it. So, uh, lots to do. Let's crack on. We start with some stats this week. The Office for National Statistics has released the latest iteration of its Students and COVID-19 survey. Kat, what have we discovered? So, the most eye-catching findings show that of those who travelled to stay with family or friends over the winter break. 40% have since returned and 60% have not yet returned to their term time address. ONS have also found that 37% of students are reporting being dissatisfied or very dissatisfied with their academic experience. And soberingly, 63% of students reported a worsening in their well-being and mental health. Mm, Interesting stuff. Michael, what did you uh, make of the findings here? Well, there's all sorts of things to dive into this one. And from my own focus group of two in my own household... (laughs) Well, I've I've got nothing wrong with policy by anecdote. No, that's right. Um, Well, it's it's sustained us for years, hasn't it? Um, Well, my twenty-year-old son, who's at uh, Manchester Met University doing history, he's gone back. Um, after initially doing so, we just said to him, look, you've got to pick a side. And he's now picked the side of uh, getting away from my cooking. Um, but, but what, what it always hammers home for me is the, um, the one-dimensional view of the student body and the different life experiences. On the other hand, my 21-year-old, he's completely stayed in Manchester where he's studying at the at BIM, the, the, the music uh, university. Um, because he's, he's, a, he's an adult now. He's 21. He's been away from home for a few years now. He's got friends that he lives with. He's paying rent. This is the other thing. Students who are in private accommodation, they see that as sunk cost already. You know, They're paying for a house. They're paying for rent that they want to actually enjoy that independence and that first step on the ladder. And also 30% of those students have gone back. When they were asked what are the reasons for them leaving the house or doing something different, 30% of them have got jobs. Yeah. And, you know, we don't know what exactly what those jobs are, but a lot of them will be in retail. 
um, stacking shelves in supermarkets, delivering food, all those sorts of things. There is an economy that's still ticking along under the radar out there. And some of them are even getting furlough payments. Cat Michael's absolutely right, isn't he? That, you know, that for a lot of students, you know, particularly given there is still a legal exemption that allows them to kind of, you know, return to their term time address, that it, it makes more sense for them to be in that term time address. Absolutely. I can agree more. I think, um, you know, this uh, data really shows the complexities of um, the challenges that people have to go through through this pandemic and students are no exception and shouldn't be treated as such you know yeah absolutely they've got more than one address um and they really deserve a lot of credit you know they've been through this really difficult time and by and large have stuck to the rules you know this data shouldn't be used as a as a stick to beat students with mm. and, and michael that you know that, that one of the things and i didn't you know i mean i'm, I'm often accused of uh, focusing on the negatives in the stuff i write on the site but uh, one of the things i did say on in the in the kind of mini blog i did on one corner was you know again one of the things buried in the data is just how kind of compliant with all the guidance and you know the uh, guidelines and rules students are you know of all the bits of society students really are following the rules well they say they're following the rules <laughs> that's, one, that's one interpretation of it 10 percent of them said that they're aware that there's a house party somewhere yeah i mean, I mean that, come that on i know there's house parties going on yeah. somewhere we read about them in the papers yeah. but um it's it's whether they'll admit to going to them but no you're right and the evidence at the university that i work at is most of our students are working really really hard at you know this the they're taking the time to study, they're staying in, and they're complying with the rules. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a, it's a very fair point to make. The other thing that's slightly exceptional about the student body is how much harder they're, uh, it's hitting them. A little bit more than the uh, the overall national average for people who feel that their well-being and their mental health has suffered. Yeah, and, 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 and Kat, that's interesting, isn't it? Because the other thing that we discovered yesterday, I mean, I don't think this was a surprise, but the other thing we discovered yesterday after Boris's press conference was Gavin Williamson confirming that at the very, very earliest, there'll be a change to the current guidance in England on which courses can have face-to-face um, until at least, you know, third week, you know, I think, I think it's second week of March. And, and, and I guess, you know, the open question is, what happens as the term ticks on, particularly for final year undergraduates, you know, getting close to finals and so on? You know, does the mental health stuff and the academic satisfaction stuff get even worse or, you know, will it level off? What what are, in, you know, what are, what, what are your members doing to try and kind of ameliorate some of that? I mean, it's so difficult to know, um, you know, what the uh, situation is going to be like in the spring and summer, isn't it? I think it's really difficult to predict. But yeah, I mean, our members have been working really hard on uh, trying to prioritise some sort of student experience you know they have really uh, built in that online pre- provision and developed covered secure spaces for those who are back on campus um i think you know we've also prioritized the mental health support as well and it is important to remember that you know we have made uh, you know universities have made mental health provision both online and also on campus and so a lot of students will need to go and access that mental health support face to face because it is so important Uh, you know I think everybody in the sector is just really you know we go into this job knowing the student experience is a really transformative one and I think we're all really heartbroken that the way this year has panned out for them um it's uh, I think they've done a phenomenal job at a really really difficult time Michael one of the things I was talking to someone about yesterday was um obviously Boris was talking about uh learning loss and you know this kind of long-term plan to address learning loss but um he didn't mention it and no one ever seems to mention it in relation to kind of higher education both in terms of the students we've currently got and you know students that are kind of doing their a-levels or b-techs that we might be about to receive and this you know it's a big issue isn't it potentially to sort of try and find ways to help students make up for um you know the learning they won't have potentially done because of the disruption i think the biggest loss that they've um 
that students must be experiencing is those serendipitous moments maybe at the end of a seminar where you just want to pop in and just have a word with the tutor and just say what about this and and those opportunities for for teaching staff to form those sorts of relationships with their students to to get to better understand with them to better you know to help them produce better work to sort of lean over when they're working in a lab or, or working on a piece of research and say why don't you try this why don't you try that it's just so hard isn't it over a zoom just like you know we'd produce a better podcast if we were all in a studio together leaning <laughs> well, I'm in i'm not and, sure about and, that and, well <laughs> that, that's the thing that breaks my heart about all this sort of thing cat's absolutely right right let's see who's been blogging for us this week Hi, I'm Ellen Hazelcorn. I joined Managing Partner with um, BH Associates based in Dublin, and I'm Professor Emeritus at the Technological University in Dublin. I've been a member of the Independent Commission and the College of the Future, and we've just published the Welsh Report on Tuesday. My piece for Wonky assesses the direction of travel for a skills policy in England in the context of what's happening in the different nations across the UK and in the Republic of Ireland. Much has been said about the skills um, for jobs white paper for England since it was published earlier in the month and whether it goes far enough or fast enough. I think it's a step in the right direction, but it's not a panacea. And it's instructive to look at the extent to which, as I said, it, it follows or reflects and builds a, across what's actually happening in the other UK countries, um, nations, from which you could, could learn actually quite a lot. And in comparison to the devolved nations, there is far too little emphasis on policy coordination and the civic role of colleges. And indeed, the voice of the learner is ignored. If we look to Wales, um, with the publication of its report, College of the Future for Wales, on Tuesday, we see a much broader approach to education and skills policy, and a big focus on the systems approach to deliver for future generations. This draws on the review that I did of the Welsh Post Compulsory System in 2016. And the focus is on creating a more diverse and seamless post-secondary education system based on embracing both further and higher education and moving beyond policies which promote simplistic predatory behaviour and unnecessary duplication between both, both parts of the system. Now, the government has committed, in principle at least, to levelling up bringing investment and opportunities to left-behind communities that haven't seen much in the way of either. Uh, Michael, uh, we're a week on now from uh, the white paper and so on. How are the snowflakes landing in that policy snow dome? Well, I think there's... I, I, I'm humbled and I can barely add anything to the analysis of this whole stuff about the skills white paper that Andy Westwood hasn't done brilliantly as he always does and i'm not just saying that because he's a mate and he is and just because it's the wonky show but it no it's a fantastic analysis because andy's got that view of history that you go back on skills policy over 30 years and there's just what's screamed out to me both what i mean what andy said but also from reading the first pass of the white paper gabby williamson's speech which he dropped on me as a birthday present back in july on, on all of this is that just that lack of institutional memory in government for every attempt that there's ever been to try and look at, um, at skills policy and it's lack of integration with all different other agendas be that leveling up be that um, industrial strategy just the lack of linkages of it it was it i found it quite terrifying in many ways but that's the whole point about skills policy i think it was tony blair said when he was prime minister or on his reflections as being prime minister if he ever wanted to announce that he was invading a foreign country bury it in page seven of a speech on skills <laughs> cat i mean you know obviously the big hole in all of this is 
uh, and and you know the kind of you know the elephant in the room, I guess, is is money, right? You know, the the that lots of the commitments uh, need uh, a comprehensive spending review, and at the moment, you know, uh, in some ways, I guess, you know, can we blame a government for not wanting to set out what its long term spending commitments might be? It's really difficult, isn't it? You know, at the moment, we're in such highly unprecedented circumstances, which I know has been the buzzword of 2020 and now 2021. Um, it is really difficult to kind of set forward those spending commitments. Um, but the reality is that we can't rebuild the economy, we can't rebuild our society as we know it without having a proper investment in skills. You know, we talked about uh, lost learning. Um, I think the only way we're going to be able to kind of uh, restart some of that learning is if we actually properly invest in a, in a skills agenda. And you kind of have to wonder whether all of this is around the fact that, you know, do we have a public that isn't really invested in skills either? Now, Michael, one of the, uh, you know, one of the things I, I like to talk about is the most popular uh, you know, saber rattling tweet that I've issued of the week. <laughs> and <laughs> actually, one of the things that surprised me is because obviously I, you know, I, I try and tweet out the headlines every morning, and, you know, the kind of, you know, what's going on in, you know, what the papers are saying. And the one that's caught on this week is just one headline that was about the kind of resurfacing of this debate about minimum entry. Uh, requirements, you know, what what I think some people would call, you know, the debate about low value students rather than low value courses. I obviously wouldn't call it that, but I mean, you know, it's you know whether or not you try and control numbers and spend through courses or, or through students. Where do you think that debate is going to go as we hurtle towards a sort of autumn and winter response to August? Well, one of the big concerns I've got is around the attitude towards BTEX and what's going to happen there. Um, again, it's a characterization that everybody goes to. Uh, residential universities from um, from schools in the south of England. It's that it's that model, and everything's viewed through that lens. Whereas actually, both the university that I work at and the college at which I'm a governor of, BTEX is an important part of that environment, and that le- that the learning environment of, in which those students operate is very different from from the model that's that predicates most of the policy announcements on this one. So I'm not sure where it's going to go. Is, is my uh, fence-sitting fudge on this one, but I'm genuinely concerned about um, about about the detriment to the student experience for people studying BTEX. And Kat, the other thing that's been kind of c- catching light all week, I guess, is, you know, n- no one was really expecting there to be, um, you know, a, a kind of cut to London's uh, both teaching funding and student premium funding in the in next year's grant letter last week. But now there's wider concern, isn't there, that that cut to London waiting might also impact research funding and, you know, the, the, the sort of, you know, your members basically in London. Yeah, I think this is an area of real concern for our, our London members. I think, yeah, this was something that we, we weren't expecting. And, uh, you know, I think what's important with the levelling up agenda is that we don't sort of rub Peter to pay Paul, you know, absolutely we should be investing in um, the regions around the UK. Um, But London is also a region. London also, um, you know, I I understand the kind of concerns around, you know, the capital having this perception of of being really well funded. But um, I think it would be a really big mistake to kind of cut all the uh, funding, which leads to all the excellent work that our our London members and and the other universities in London do. Well, excellent. Lots of analysis uh, on the site, lots of links in the show notes. Uh, You know, drop us us comments and thoughts if you want to contribute to those debates as they uh, continue. Now, every week on The Wonky Show, we reach deep into the past to discover stories of how we were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history of HE. What is it that has made England, uh, and it's England rather than Scotland, 
uh, adopt this particular residential model. Now, obviously, this is deep in our history, um, but and, and most of it is just an accident. But it becomes an accident that becomes enshrined in policy. Oxford and Cambridge start off on their course to becoming the great universities that they are um, by wanting to be quite a long way away from the king and his courts and the bishop and their authority. So they're quite happy being in small towns, uh, relatively well connected, but not so connected so that the person in charge of them could be, be there all the time. So that's a benefit to both those two universities and a benefit that they're not in a major city. Now England only has one major city, but neither of those two universities are in London um, and it's quite clear that that that's that's fine so they set off in that model and therefore it's quite clear that if they are national universities and as we've discussed before they're quite good at killing off other people's attempts to have universities um, then everyone has to travel to those universities and they set up a term system so that you're only there for eight weeks then you can go home again and uh, whether or not we believe that people really went home in the summer to do the harvest but the, the, the time you were there you were in residence um, either uh, in one of the colleges or in a hall, and therefore you you had a, a kind of wraparound experience in terms of somebody looking after you the whole time, and that was part of the education that was on offer. So we ended up with a situation that that's that's a good thing, and that provides quite a strong uh, basis for uh, continuing education. Now the commuter universities that come in the uh, 19th century push against that. Places like UCL and later uh, Manchester and Leeds and Liverpool, uh, they might have small numbers of of residence but they generally uh, most of their students are commuting most of their students are coming in every day but by the time we get after the um, first world war there are two new bodies with a view on how higher education should be best organized the new university grants committee um, is con uh, constructed of, of uh, great and the good who come together and, and think deep thoughts about higher education should best be organised. They think residence is, is the best way of organising a higher education institution. And the other new body that has a view on these things is the National Union of Students. And it's the National Union of Students who also makes quite a lot of the running on residential life is best. And there are lots of reports written in, and snarky books about how the life of the commuting student is, is nothing like the life of the residential student. The residential student can go to debates and have dinners and, and live that kind of much broader richer life uh, and lots of reports saying how sad it is um, that uh, commuting students don't get to do that and this is put into play in, in UGC action the only university that UGC allowed to become a university between the wars is Reading Reading has a very firm commitment to residence uh, much more unlike any of the other university colleges it's very committed uh, it's, it's sponsored by Oxford it's very committed to having a residential experience and so it's the only one that gets through so we get to the 50s uh, we're dealing with expansion of higher education and there's a clear attempt to say the residential model is much better Keel has started off on a residential model but there's a, a, a grand committee uh, chaired by Niblet uh, that comes together and says, look, this is this is where we should be going. We want to avoid the nine to five mentality, which is the great enemy of university education. Um, and therefore, the UGC committed to provide capital funds to build residences. So this is great because, of course, um, one of the things it tried to do was set out clear specifications. You couldn't build grander halls of residence uh, than the UGC would give you money for. You had to build them. So if you um, spend your time uh, trolling around the country going to 1950s and 60s halls of residence, you will find the square meterage 
is pretty much the same everywhere you go. The same little basin in the corner of the room, uh, the same wardrobe, uh, the same vanishingly small bed on which to sleep. You can't build bigger than the UGC will give you money for, even if you've actually got the cash to do it. So there's a, a, a grand specification. And this comes from a very egalitarian sense. Everyone gets the same kind of accommodation. And those universities that um, have got different kinds of accommodation have to deal with this. One of the reasons that some of those universities got great accommodation is that uh, in the 17th and 18th century, uh, one of the ways that Oxford and Cambridge tried to attract better-off students was by building small palaces for them to live in. So if you go around and you look at some of the great buildings that you know we all buy postcards of, it's because they built buildings to look like the palaces uh, and great country houses that they, these uh, uh, sons of the gentry had come out of. And so they built them to make you know, very familiar, you know, the same kind of panelling, same kind of high rooms, the same kind of you know um, classical architecture. But there's a sense that we should have this kind of utilitarian uh, view as we go forward. So we then obviously have uh, the UGC funding these kinds of things. Uh, eventually when the sector comes together the polytechnics have a great rush to try and deal with building um, uh, residences um, as many of which now have to come off uh, the balance sheet because Hefke decides we're not building residences. Mostly, I assume, because um, there's no way they could have afforded to pay for the polytechnics to have all of their stuff and to balance out the sector, and therefore they all come off balance sheet. Now, that's probably a progenitor of another problem, uh, as now we have all these accommodation blocks off residence. We, you know, financing has become problematic. The other thing that's, of course, that allowed to happen now is that people are now back in the business, just as they were in the 18th century, of building luxury accommodation blocks. So now we have a wonderful tradition uh, restarting again that just as... Um, uh, Dean Aldridge built grand blocks for people uh, to come to Oxford. Now they're building grand blocks for people to go to, to London and, and live in swanky things with cinemas and gyms and swimming pools and concierge services and all the rest of these kind of things. So we're, we're kind of back where we were before. So um, Howard Silver wrote about this uh, before um, this kind of span off where people were still using PFI rather than just completely outsourcing it. And he was concerned that we were abandoning a tradition of residences, that we no longer see them in an educational context only as essential for competitive recruitment. And he wrote that in 2007. And I think that's kind of where we are now. So the concern about we've ended up with this residential model, um, but we probably let slip the controls that we once had over it. Now, new data from HESA shows that 35% of 2019-20 graduates received a first-class degree. Kat, what's going on here? So this new data shows um, that... 82% of students were gaining either a first or an upper second. Um, I mean, this upward trend likely shows the impact of the adoption of no detriment policies by uh, many universities during the first lockdown. Um, I think uh, with this, we really need to make sure that we still have uh, confidence in the universities and the qualifications uh, that they received. You know, I don't, I, I think given uh, the impacts of the pandemic, I think students should should be really proud of themselves and the resilience that they have shown over this time. Yeah, Michael, this is a tough one, isn't it? Because on the one hand, it's really important that UKHE, you know, still has and maintains its high standards. On the other hand, you know, students have had a really tough time. How do you squeeze through these two, you know, difficult uh, pressures? Yeah, well, it's, it's taken, taken us a while to, to make sure that our no detriment policy takes on board all of those different factors with the priority to maintain both the as you say Jim the integrity of the qualification and and, and not to penalize students who are having a really rough time out of it um, all, all the metrics on it show that um, 
Yeah, you know, this has been a really tough decision to, to have to make. And there'll be a third calculation that uh, work assessed over the last two years of study will also be weighted into it. That's been um, one of the inputs that our university have done on this. Yeah, I mean, obviously in schools, there's a sort of, you know, there's there's now a sort of acceptance, I think, in the, in the, in the kind of run up to uh, whatever's going to sort of, you know, temporarily resemble A-levels that, that, that will probably be a level of grade inflation and i guess the you know the question that a lot of students would ask is if there was a bunch of grade inflation last year shouldn't there be a bunch of grade inflation this year even if it you know is chopped back next year or is this you know is this the right time to be you know more robust about standards i don't know i think we have to be really really careful and i think every institution is going to have to take into account its own individual context um i mean thinking about uh my members you know they've not um you know they've, they've unanimously said and the, their students unions have agreed with them that taking an algorithmic approach to um you know no detriment this year isn't isn't the right one um and uh, actually it's much better to take you know the individual context of the of the uh, university and their circumstance and uh, for them to apply their own measures uh, you know often going with a case by case basis or you know ranging from lots of different options so I think we have to really sort of balance, you know, it is a it is a really difficult balance to kind of strike, isn't it? That, um, you know, obviously having really high standards is important. Um, but also there are lots of things that uh, students will have learned over this pandemic, namely resilience. And I think if you're an employer, what an amazing graduate uh, to employ uh, as someone who's, you know, a student that's gone through the uh, pandemic in, as, a, as a student. Yeah, there's something in here, Michael, isn't there, about, um, you know, perhaps temporarily revisiting some of those old debates about, um, you know, making clearer to the wider world what people have achieved rather than just their sort of, you know, degree classification. Because Kat's right, isn't she? You know, there's all sorts of really interesting and valuable things that students will have learnt during this process. Let's not forget as well, a lot of students are studying what are essentially professional qualifications. And it's really, it, people have, in the outside world have to have the confidence that if somebody's studying, for instance, medicine or or, or some other technical qualifications in, in, in engineering or science, things like that, that they actually have to come out of this as a qualified engineer, or at least on the pathway to becoming a doctor. And you don't want to have to have missed the module um, that's absolutely critical to somebody's um you know, life-enhancing success, you know, if it's dealing with patients, for instance. Um, yeah, it is. It's massively tough. And um, and universities have to tread a very, very fine balance here. Kat, one of the things I think, you know, that that's clear about what lots of people are kind of agreeing as their sort of safety nets or no detriment policies is, you know, what I would call the sort of driving test solution where people have more attempts to reach the standard and people can spend longer preparing to you know, meet to, to, to have that attempt, you know, the deadlines can be pushed back and or they can have, you know, uncapped resets or, you know, whatever that might be. Isn't there a problem coming that if lots and lots of students kind of push back when they undertake assessment, that at some point we just sort of run out of time and suddenly it's September? I think that's a really big problem. And I think there's also um, some particular problems that we're seeing in, in certain courses as well. I think, you know, uh, the impact it's had on dentistry, for example, um, you know, just the practical implications of a dentistry degree, you know, you need to drill into someone's mouth. Can't um, do that on a webcam, know, I've tried. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm envisioning um, scenes from Little Shop of Horrors there. Um, but yeah, the uh, you know at some point you know just even just even on a practical level, um, some of these uh, modules are going to have to be pushed back, and 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 there is a real issue there. I think that's something that we've raised with government, and we'll continue to raise until they support us with finding a solution. Yeah, because Michael, as well as you know potential costs and, and and hassle for universities, you know having to kind of extend the academic year in different types of ways for different types of students on different types of courses will 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 you know there are costs for students too of that sort of stuff aren't there if you've suddenly got to go on your i don't know your geography field trip to the oxbow lake in november when you've graduated not not least as well where if, if you do extend the year a lot of um, tenancy agreements will be ending on the first of july um there's all sorts of different implications of this and it's something that you know the extension of the of the academic year in schools surely must be on the agenda you know, it's education shuts down for the month of august well not not if you're a teacher it doesn't because you're preparing and all the rest of it as we know um but what's going to happen with, with schools as well that's there's, there's going to be a massive knock-on effect on this one that actually the the start of the year um may um may, may come at a different point in time as well if this continues like and this. i guess the other thing is you know the students that everyone is about to receive as new students in the autumn and winter you know they will have had you know all sorts of impacts of the pandemic you know on their mental health the amount of time they've spent in education and so on so even if someone fudges their a levels or btechs the students we're about to get may not be prepared in the, in the way that we kind of sometimes assume they're prepared uh, you know, in an average year. Absolutely. And I think universities will be thinking really hard about, you know, what preparations they need to put in place in order to kind of plug that knowledge gap. But also, as you rightly point out, that the, the uh, it, like enhanced mental health support that students are going to need um, as well as you know how you're going to be built sorry how you're going to build a fulfilling um, sort of social uh, campus experience when we have no idea you know whether we're going to be in a fourth or fifth wave it's really really tricky. Now what's afoot at St Andrews and why does it relate to legislation? DK is on the trail. The University of St Andrews is one of only two UK universities to have given birth to a direct regional competitor. Don't worry, I'll tell you the other one at the end. In the 1960s, Dundee University emerged from the old St Andrews Queen's College, a campus focused on sciences and medicine in the city of Dundee, 12 miles north from the main St Andrews campus. To support this, the 1966 Universities Bracket Scotland Act prohibited St Andrews from offering competing degrees in medicine and dentistry. This didn't quite stop St Andrews. After all, it's always offered a BSc in medicine, which is the first half of a qualifying medical degree. Students have to leave St Andrews to do the second half, completing their studies either elsewhere in Scotland, at Aberdeen, Dundee, Edinburgh or Glasgow, or in England, in Manchester or Queen Mary University of London. However, Scotland is struggling to recruit GPs to work in remote areas. So in 2016, the government awarded funds to run the Scott Gem course, a postgraduate entry in medicine course designed to supply those solely needed GPs, which would lead to a medical degree jointly awarded by St Andrews and Dundee. In making this award, St Andrews will need to be granted special permission to bestow medical degrees, a need that has raised the wider spectre of this unique and anti-competitive legislative restriction and the need to remove it. Just about everybody agrees that this should happen. One key voice not in favour is the University of Dundee, understandably not keen on removing the restriction if the result is to be a local, prestigious, competing medical school. Of course, medicine is a controlled subject, so even without the legal restrictions, St Andrews would need to be given student numbers by SFC and approval by the General Medical Council. 
So, the University of St Andrews degrees in medicine and dentistry bill passed stage one in Scottish Parliament by unanimous vote. It will need to pass all three stages before the summer recess if Scotgem students are to graduate in time. The fallback position, which students are not keen on, is to get a Dundee degree only. The other UK university to bring about a new regional competitor? That was uh, Durham, the old medical school of which begat the University of Newcastle in 1963. And finally, there's a new report out from Transforming Access and Student Outcomes in Higher Education on uh, care experience students. Uh, Michael, tell us more. Yeah, it highlights a lack of good quality evidence for interventions to support care experience students in higher education. Summarises 57 published studies. And it's, um, it's done what lots of reports have done over the last couple of weeks. He said there need to be more reports done on this sort of thing. It, uh, it, it ultimately calls for the availability of better quality data and drawing on agreed definitions. I mean, this whole thing with care leavers entering into higher education, I think one of the findings from it um, is that there's a lack of appreciation of the fact that a lot of care leavers don't enter university at the age of 18. They might enter it much later in life. And there's a real mismatch between teams in different universities where the mature students team isn't necessarily talking to the care leavers team or the widening participation team. And yet they're actually talking about the same student, but with a different life experience coming into the institution. Kat, this sort of report, I think, could get you know easily missed at uh, this time of year at this stage in the pandemic. What what um, you know what caught your eye here? Um, I attended a roundtable uh, quite recently with both Michelle Donnellan and uh, Vicky Ford, um, listening to the experiences of care leavers directly, which was just fascinating. And I think this point around definition is really really crucial. Um, you know, changing the definition of care leaver to extend beyond twenty five. Um, so that students are eligible to get the support that they need um, is something that I think is really critical. And I think also that um, join up between local authorities and um, universities and schools, etc., is is absolutely critical and something that um, lots of these uh, the care leaver students were calling for in this in in the roundtable that I attended. So I really agree with that uh, point in the report as well. And it very much chimes with what the Russell Group is calling for in terms of a joined up approach um, to access from you know early years onwards. Michael, more generally, the, the challenges, um, you know, kind of coming out of the back of the pandemic in uh, sort of responding to lots of the aspects of the access and participation agenda are huge, aren't they? Oh, massive. Yeah. Um, I was I was chatting in the preamble to, to coming onto this podcast with Peter Riley, head of our widening participation programmes at Manchester Met. And some of the work that they're doing, um, linking up with other institutions around Greater Manchester, with the Greater Manchester Combined Authority um, and different colleges as well. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing, the, the level and extent of the work that they have to do in normal times. And that during a pandemic, you know, to try and help recruit students, provide them with that pastoral support, provide all those different gateways. Um, I'm interested as well as whether universities in the Russell Group have signed up on block to the care leavers covenant we we've been asked to um i think a lot of our members actually have signed up to the covenant um definitely and uh, i don't have a i don't have a figure for you unfortunately michael but um we definitely know that lots of our lots of our members have done um i think there is also just i think the nature of the challenge is changing and you know in terms of what we're seeing in schools as well and the long-term impacts of the pandemic are going to be critical from years to come i'm a school governor in a school in in london and the number of safeguarding cases has just rocketed um and i imagine that's the case throughout 
throughout the country. So I think, you know, in terms of access to higher education, this is going to be a problem for years and years to Do come. Do either of you, I mean, one of the things I worry about is a lot of the, you know, a lot of this debate has moved on to kind of, you know, the participation and, you know, keeping people and supporting people when they're in. But obviously, there's a hell of a lot of work to get people in in the first place, a lot of outreach. How on earth are people doing outreach at the moment? Do either of you have a sense of that? Yeah, I get a sense of it from both angles, to be honest. We've got, uh, I'm a governor of a sixth form college in Stockport. And, you know, in normal times, we'd have, you know, the corridor that goes right through the middle of the college with universities with their little stands and pop-up banners and all the rest of it, talking to parents and uh, and students about the opportunities. That can't happen, you know, alongside employers as well. Um, it, it's It's been quite difficult in the next couple of weeks hopefully on this podcast you'll cover it it's national apprenticeships week we've got a whole slew of activities working with the people like the great manchester combined authority the great manchester skills partnership things like that on showing out what we've got to offer with apprenticeships and that the difficulty there jim you're hitting the nail on the head it's communicating this a complex story with different different partners and different moving parts to a student body that's only just coming to well, a potential student body that's coming to terms with a new way of delivering ed- education. Completely. And I think, um, you know, the challenges around this can't be overstated, but I think there's also some uh, positives or some opportunities here as well around outreach in terms of how it moves into the digital space. Um, you know, we had our advancing access uh, conference last May, um, right in the middle of the first uh, sort of lockdown. And uh, we were amazed by the number of teachers accessing those conferences because you're not having to take time out of school to attend a physical event. You can you can drop into something for a few hours and, and gain some really important knowledge and then move on. Um, so I think there are some opportunities to do some sort of uh, sort of a breadth of reach um, across the country with digital outreach as well. Um, so yeah, hopefully there'll be some some important lessons learned. So that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Do remember, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Apple Podcasts or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, do drop us an email on teamatwonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Michael, Kat, everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen behind the scenes. And until next week, stay wonky. Stay wonky.